Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 222 with my guest, Terry Hartman. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out. You can uh, fill out surveys uh, anonymously that help me get to know you. Um, You can also see how other people filled out surveys. You can uh, join the forum. You can read blogs by me, guest blogs by people. Uh, You can support the show. Or as I like to say, you can just stick your thumb up your ass and uh, watch the sun go down. I don't think I've ever ever added that last part, but uh, you got to mix it up. If you're going to have people with their thumbs in their asses, you gotta you gotta get a little variety in there. Um, let's get right to it. This is from the. Hold on one second. Getting fucking old. I need glasses to read. Um, sip of tea. Can you guess what uh, what kind of tea it is? That would be black tea. A little bit of half and half. This is from the survey uh, struggle in a sentence. Filled out by Emily, Emily D., and uh, about having borderline personality disorder. She writes, like I am wrong for having opposing feelings and opinions and must shapeshift in order to feel real. And then a snapshot from her life. I go into work, get triggered by my boss trying to banter with me, get triggered again when a coworker tries to be nice to me, get triggered again when I think someone hasn't said hi, sweat, shake, get triggered again when I stammer. Rinse, cycle, repeat until eight hours later when I finally get to go home and all I want to do is veg out on my bed until I have to do it all over again the next day. 
This was filled out by a guy who calls himself Spaced Out Wanderer. And about his depression, he writes, The whole world travels at 80 miles per hour, and I'm stuck trying to start the car. Sometimes I wish I didn't have a car. I love that one. Um, this is filled up by a woman who calls herself Anonymous about being a sex crime victim. She writes, like having a large hideous tattoo I didn't choose that I am forced to stare at every time my clo- clothing comes off. And then a snapshot from her life, she writes, um, I was raped slash uh, sexually assaulted several times while unconscious. Happened repeatedly when I was a child, so I will never know my real sexual self. My sexuality has been hijacked and feels forever repulsive and like it is not mine. I don't even know who all the offenders are, what they look like, or all that they did. It's so disgusting. I hate that the offenders know more than I do. God, I can't imagine how hard that must be. Um Continuing, now I am stuck with unwanted thoughts of degrading sexual contact with an unseen person. It grosses me out, and I dissociate and can't finish. I hate it. I wish I could just close my eyes and picture Ryan Gosling or whatever normal people do, but picturing any person or face also makes it impossible to finish. Trying to get off becomes a constant battle of trying to reshape my sexual thoughts into something tolerable to me. Maybe Ryan Gosling is there, but he's just blindfolded me because I told him to, and this is consensual. Stuff like that doesn't always work. My experiences are so intolerable to me that I catch myself envying the trauma of other survivors, thinking I could handle what happened to them more than I can handle what happened to me. This makes me feel like a terrible person. I know other survivors are just as hurt, and this is a ridiculous thought to have. Thank you so much for that. Boy, you really, really poured your soul out into that one, and I appreciate it, and the listeners appreciate it. Uh, This is uh, filled out by Donna A. and about compulsive overeating. She writes, standing in line, looking at the normal-sized girl in front of me and thinking, now she is a human being, not me. Thank you, Donna. This is filled up by uh, Little Deb and about her love addiction. She writes, questioning if I'm really meeting idiots slash uninteresting men or if my defensive wall is getting higher. That is a great one. That is a really great one. I think a lot of people um, relate to that feeling of not knowing whether your standards are too high or you, you know, it's it's not meant to be. Uh, and then this one is filled out by a guy who calls himself S about his depression. He writes, the first thing I think when I get out of bed is, well, I woke up again, son of a bitch. Uh, I relate to that one. And uh, he, he writes, I also spend ridiculous amounts of time chatting on erotic role-playing websites, wasting my free time instead of doing anything creative. Well, you know, my first thought when I read that was, you know, if it wasn't a ridiculous amount of time that you were on there, um, erotic role playing is being creative. So I don't know if there's a if, if there's a way that you can just say, okay, I'm only going to spend you know x amount of time doing this every day or, or every week, and then try to stick to that. I say, fucking have at it, man! What a great way to great way to be creative. This is filled out by a um, person who calls uh, themselves anxious androgyne and uh, they identify as gender queer and uh, pansexual and about uh, their anxiety they write uh, generalized anxiety disorder the delusion that the more you worry about the future and ruminate about the past the higher chance you have of somehow magically changing them that is brilliant um, 
and about dermatillomania. They write, the delusion that when you pick at a scab that you created in the first place and have been repeatedly picking at for several weeks, it will come off cleanly and leave perfect skin underneath with no bleeding or scarring whatsoever, and you will magically stop feeling ugly and dirty. And then a snapshot from their life. As I type this, my mom is yelling at my dad, which is triggering intense physical symptoms of anxiety, despite not being the target of the abuse at the moment. And I'm planning how to get out of the house just in case, even though it doesn't get that bad 99% of the time. And before you ask, yes, I am making plans to move in, uh, to move in a few months. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, and then this is filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself Slothfuck. He's a friend of mine already. You had me at sloth fuck. You had me at sloth. Uh, about his depression, he writes, what kind? The shitty kind. Um, he has a type 1 diabetes and snapshot from his life. He writes, hey, I've got the whole day to myself. What should I do? I know I'll masturbate and then go back to sleep. <laughs> oh, my God. The... Uh, masturbation and uh, and sleeping. Uh, depression's peanut butter and jelly. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I, I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So, <laughs> so that is when I first felt love. Like I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. I think I was 28, and that was the first time I ever experienced that, and it was amazing. I'm here with Terry Hartman, who is a listener, and uh, you're a store manager. That's uh, what you do for a living. That's it. And uh, one of the things, when you emailed me, you... By the way, you've been such a great supporter of the show and sent me so many supportive emails around stuff that I've been through I'm just excited to meet you in person and get a hug. Pleasure's mine. Yeah. Uh, But one of the things that we're going to talk about that you live with is fibromyalgia. Correct. And it's such a complex. It's a ridiculous thing. It's kind of what people have called a garbage diagnosis, meaning that, not that it's not real because it's very real, but there aren't any tests for it. You can't, you know, you can't just take your blood and say, oh, you have fibromyalgia. It's a complex syndrome of chronic pain. And people vary in different degrees to when the pain occurs and when it doesn't occur. And for me, it's it's sporadic. But I brought along the WebMD, what's it called? Definition. Definition. Because it shows you how difficult it is. There's simply no single theory that explains the cause of fibromyalgia. Neither do we know what causes fibromyalgia to flare up. So it's just chronic pain. And it's a bitch to live with. How uh, Can I ask how old you are? I'm 54. 
And when did you first start experiencing what? You know, I've been thinking about it, and it's kind of always been with me. But Do you mind if I take my shoes off? Not at all. Okay. But, you know, no other clothing, okay? <laughs> we don't know each other that well, Paul. Um, I've always been in pain. So I didn't realize that I was in pain because I thought everybody was. I thought that was just kind of the part of being human. But I think as far back as I can remember, so early, at least by the time I was 10. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, that far back? I had constant pain. Oh, my God. Yeah, and it's kind of, for me, it's kind of like just my body feels like it's full of cement and movement hurts. But then there's times where specific things will hurt. Like I think what other people feel like after they've exercised and lactic acid yeah. builds up. I, I'll get that. But on top of that, there's just this chronic kind of moving through mud in a cement-filled body. Is it the the feeling um, of the pain in specific areas or in your skin is it is it ever like that feeling um you have when you're starting to get a fever and your yes. skin hurts yes it's kind of like that it's like constant muscle ache and then it's it's good you brought up the skin because there's that too there's the kind of being very tactily aware of things like yeah. i can't wear wool usually because that will hurt me so do sounds hurt sounds don't hurt no, it's all Because some physical. do. Some people who have yeah. chronic pain, they yeah. also have misophonia, I think is what it's... Oh, what it, the, the, I don't the know word. about I'm that. I'm learning so much stuff, dude. Oh, my God. Don't tell me anymore. I might I, get it. I read the uh, struggle in a sentence last week of uh, a woman who uh, sh- her, her, her snapshot was describing a subway ride, and I just felt so much compassion for every sense of her that is just assaulted in going oh, through her daily life. Yeah. The sounds that, you know, she talked about just, um, you know, somebody brushing against her gently on the subway and it just uh, reacting with a hiss, hissing at them. Oh, my God. And I was like, you know, and then probably people think, oh, she's an asshole. Well, that's the problem. Because it's not like you're on crutches or you're, you know, you're missing an arm or something. Nobody knows. It's Describe uh, other ways that you feel it in your in your body. Um, is it is there ever a sharp pain, or is it usually no. more of a dull? It's a dull, lingering ache. Um, it'll be sharp when I get a migraine, which fortunately I had them a lot during my twenties and thirties, but haven't haven't had many recently. So that's the only time it's sharp. It's more just it's kind of dull ache it's just really an ache so give me a snapshot of when it when it first started happening when you were when you were 10 years old what a day in your life was like in terms of feeling the pain and dealing with it and then if there's any arc bring it to where you are today and what it's like from when you open your eyes in the morning until you lay your head down at night? The first time I remember feeling what I identify as fibromyalgia is after I'd had the flu and it just didn't go away. 
and had the flu and it just kept on and kept on. And, and did you think, I, I still have the flu, I haven't gotten over it yet? Or did it? I did, but I didn't have any other symptoms. I didn't have a temperature. I didn't, mm. you know, really know what to think. And so my mom took me to the doctors and there, were, there wasn't anything wrong with me. But I knew, I knew I still hurt. And throughout my teens, I hurt. Back up for a second. When they told you there wasn't anything wrong with you, do you remember what you thought or felt when they said that? And was there any compassion for you from anybody around it? They were telling you you were making it up. You were being an exaggerator. You're what you're doing it for attention. What, what, What were the things that were said to you and how did you feel? Well, my mom's famous phrase was get over it. So she told me to get over it. And so I thought I was going crazy. Did you blame yourself then? Of course I blamed myself. Good yes. girl. Good girl. <laughs> what do perfectionists do but blame ourselves? Of course. Yeah, I thought I thought I was a malinger. I thought I was trying to get attention that maybe I was making it up. And I have to be honest. I've carried that with me. You still feel that way? No, I don't. But I still feel I still feel, feel wish I understood it a little bit more. It's got to be incredibly frustrating. Oh, it is. Do you ever feel like your body is at fault on a certain level like like it couldn't handle something that another person maybe oh, maybe couldn't have could have handled. Jeez, you're in my head. I felt that for decades. I don't anymore. I understand yeah. more why it's happened and how it's because I've reacted to certain things. But for years, I just thought I was weak. Like and the- I mean, look at me. I'm not a weak looking person. I mean, yeah. I'm tall and vibrant. But yeah. I thought it was weakness. Almost like it's a genetic, like it's an expression of your genetic failure. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, but not just genetic, moral, psychological. Yeah. Why? Weakness. What? About Um, about what? I wasn't, I wasn't living up to somebody's standards for me. I wasn't. I wasn't enough. So this was an extension of that? Yes. Or? Yes. If if I could have just gotten over it, then I'd be the good girl. And I couldn't. So as if there was an answer that you didn't have the will or the strength to connect to. Right. Or you were too stupid yes. to. Yes. And that's it. I was always a real brainy young kid. And it was something I couldn't think my way out of and boy did that frustrate me i can't imagine yeah it it just it stayed there okay and then you were starting to say fast forward to your 20s right. or okay and give us a snapshot from that i was really unhappy during my 20s and strangely enough when i was unhappy the pain got worse um I think like a lot of 20-somethings, I was trying to find myself. I didn't know what I wanted to do for a profession. I didn't know if I'd ever find a life partner. All of that uncertainty. I've always been a worrier. And the worry and the pain go hand in hand. And I've always worn 
my stress inside. So I could look on the face of it like I was confident, competent, all those things that, you know, smart people learn to mimic. But it all went inside, and I was just in constant pain, no matter what. You know, it, it occurred to me today as I was fixing something to eat, there's, I don't know why I needed to mention that, but um, that there's a difference between what we think about ourselves and what we feel about ourselves, oh. and they're not necessarily the same thing. No. I was talking with some survivors this this weekend, some sexual abuse survivors, and we were going around and we were all talking about our shame and how our shame morphs from one thing to the next. And almost every one of them said, I know it wasn't my fault, but I can't get rid of this feeling yes. that I am to blame. Yes. And that I never so much felt I was to blame for the pain. For me, it was more I was to blame for not getting rid of it. Yeah. That there must have been a way to get rid of it. And the more I did that, the more I hurt because I wasn't understanding it and I wasn't having the compassion I needed for myself. Did you have in your 20s, did you have anybody in your life who was nurturing you? You know, my dad, my dad did, but on a different level, on a, I never told him I was in pain. I've, I've always tried to protect everybody around me from anything that they couldn't take care of. So I did have my dad. My dad was very nurturing, but I didn't let him in. I didn't let anybody in. Why do you, th why do you think you didn't let your dad in? I needed to protect him. I grew up thinking that I needed to protect everybody in my world because if I didn't, then chaos would ensue. What about your dad did you think needed protecting? And what was the chaos that would ensue? My mom. My mom was the chaos. Um, my mom's a real, well, she was, she's no longer with us, but she was very volatile, very, very mercurial. One day would be great. I was the love of her life. She couldn't do enough for me. The next day, she didn't want anything to do with me or any of the family. And that was the problem. I've, I'm the oldest of two, and I felt that I held the family together. What a burden. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, incredible. What what did you sense in your dad that made you think he needed to be rescued or protected? There's a real passivity in him. He's he's a very loving guy and a really smart, engaged guy. But I think the fact that he was with my mom, made me feel that maybe he wasn't the protector I needed. Does that make sense? I think that... That makes sense, but I help me understand why you felt you needed to protect him, although I have a theory. Oh, go ahead. Maybe you can help it's me. It's because if you could focus on his pain, you didn't have to think about your own pain. 
Oh, that's good. I think there is something to that, and I've always felt this responsibility for everyone. Yeah. I mean, I think I grew up feeling responsible for my mom's emotions and then just kind of extrapolated that out to the rest of the world. I think it's my way of controlling things. I, I completely agree with, with yeah. that theory. Yeah. Um, I also think that there's a certain high that we can get when we do make those connections and we see that we've been able to bring comfort to someone. And as a child, we don't know that it's unhealthy for us to be comforting a parent. No. Um, So I think we get that sense of control on the few occasions that we do see that we right. change a parent's mood. We bring a smile to their face. We cut the tension at dinner by cracking a joke or what, you know, help somebody yeah. see a point of view that maybe they hadn't considered. But that then I think in many ways becomes our, our drug. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. And I think it's also a really kind of primeval way to keep the wolves at bay. If I can control this situation, then it won't turn bad. It won't swallow me up. Exactly. It's such a terrifying thought that the world is as seemingly chaotic and cruel yeah. as it is. And I think we will go to any lengths to keep ourselves from thinking that about our lives. I think we I think we can do it about the world as a whole or other people's lives, but with our right. own lives, I think it would be so hard to get out of get out of bed if we if we really thought that and yet then there's such areas of beauty and safety and vulnerability and connection in the world, but I think when when we're in that headspace, we're all we're feeling is the chaos and the pain and the Oh, I think fear it's the true. unknown. Yeah. And I think you're right. If if we did take that in to our little personal sphere, what would be the point? So yeah, it's easier to kind of keep it out there and say, "Oh no, everything's okay in here." But for me, at least for most of my life, that was a false sense of control. Mm -hmm. And it didn't help the pain. The physical oh, good pain. Lord. <laughs> no, it just intensified it. So talk yeah. about that. Um. I did everything I was supposed to as a teenager. You know, I got good grades. I wasn't a troublemaker. I went to college. I did well in college. I pursued professions. I took some professional risks. But I never felt really authentic. And I always felt fearful so much fear and that you know I turned in on myself and then I felt fearful and in pain but I didn't know I didn't understand what was going on were you in touch with the fear did you did you were you because a lot of times people don't know what they're feeling is fear a lot of times it'll manifest itself as anger and they don't re realize that underneath the anger they're fucking terrified for me it was depression it manifests as depression and so i was depressed i mean there were weeks i wouldn't get out of bed because i felt this and i think 
and you're and you were physically hurting as well. Yeah. So why why get in out of bed at all? But I think for me it was it wasn't so much depression. I think you're absolutely right. It was diagnosed as depression, but I think it was anxiety and it was fear. And it, I couldn't. Again, it was a problem that I couldn't think my way out of. I didn't know what to do about it. And again. I didn't know other people didn't always feel this way. And so if you live in a world where you think what you're feeling, everyone else is feeling, and you take to your bed for a week and nobody else is taking to their bed, <laughs> even you're though, weak. Even though everybody else wants to. Yeah, exactly. I didn't know that. <laughs> and they're jealous they <laughs> that you've gone ahead and taken to your bed for a week. I became a role model. <laughs> I think so many people listening right now are going, oh my God, I feel exactly, or I have felt yeah. exactly how she feels. The fear of the unknown, the, mm-hmm. the fear of being found out to be a fraud. The oh, feeling absolutely. That if, if everybody knew how defective I am. Yeah. Well, the fear of not measuring up mm-hmm. and the fear of not being enough. So I took, I took all the kind of quantifiable steps. You know, I went to school, I got good grades. I did all of that. So yes, I was trying, but it, it wasn't enough. I was still really fearful. Was it a, a a generalized fear or was it, was it a specific fear about specific things and people? It was a fear. It was a fear of the future. It was a fear of I couldn't control the future. I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know if I was going to meet somebody to spend my life with. I didn't know if I'd have enough money for the rest of my life. I didn't know if I'd, you know, if I'd live better than my parents did. It was kind of. Nobody, nobody has that, Terry. This, in, <laughs> this interview is over. Thank you for your time. I'm a freak. <laughs> but you're a freak. You're a freak and everybody's got the future figured out. We're no. secure. We're going to do better than our parents. No, but none and of that's true. Of course it's not. But that was it. I was afraid I wasn't going to be able to live the American yeah. dream. And so I wasted decades in fear and pain. That sense of doom is a motherfucker, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's, it's Well, you can't. Once you're in it, you don't know how to get out of it. Sometimes you don't even know you're in it. You think it's reality. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's that's the worst. When it colors everything you do, every decision you make, every interaction you have with other people. And then you find yourself wondering why people don't want to be around you. It's really a mystery. You know, my thought is you're expressing all these things to us is we look at it intellectually. We're, we're looking to try to get out of out of it. It's like we're trapped in a maze and we're intellectually trying to find the exit to it. But in reality, it's an emotional maze yes. that we need to connect to other human beings to feel our way right. out of it, to release feelings right? To, to, to begin. So talk about before we get to today and we get a snapshot from your life, talk about any processing that you've done with therapy or any of that other stuff? Well, first of all, I grew up being told by my mom, by my mom that I was too emotional. 
And that's such a horrible thing to tell somebody. It's a terrible thing to tell a child. Because what does that mean? What you're doing by doing that is invalidating any emotion. You're invalidating their humanity. Right. Right. And I realized she was saying that because she didn't want to deal with it because she didn't know how. But so then I thought there was something wrong with me, of course. So... And, that, and and that's not to say that if you're, you know, at a diner and your kids start screaming to say, right. let's go outside. This isn't appropriate for where we are right now. Right. What you're feeling is okay, but the way you're expressing it right now is not an appropriate time or place. Right. But that's not what no. was going on. No, of course on. not. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I just wanted to say that in yes. case there are parents out there that have, you know, quickly rushed their child out of a restaurant. No, do that. Please do that. Yes, for my sake. For the love of God and get them off my <laughs> fucking plane to Baltimore. <laughs> it's the worst. Anyhow. <laughs> no. So being told I was too emotional, then I was scared of emotions. But I had them. So I didn't know how to deal with them. So I didn't ever learn how to express or communicate emotions to another person. So then when I was in my 20s and there was a series of failed relationships, it occurred to me that maybe there was a problem that I needed more than just you know reading a book. So I went to therapy for the first time and it was great. It was with an older woman and it was, she gave me kind of the mothering and the nurturing that I needed. So that was great. I don't, oh gosh, I wish there were a kind of neat correlation with, and then suddenly the pain went away. What do you remember uh, thinking or feeling when you felt that nurturing from her? What did it feel like? Great, I would imagine. It did, but at first I was skeptical because I was paying her. Isn't so that the worst? Yeah. It's I fucking horrible. hate that. They can be the greatest therapist in the world, and the mean part of your brain will yep. go, sucker. Yeah. Sucker. Yeah. But then, as our years together went on, I really appreciated just somebody, an older woman, listening to me and telling me I was going to be okay and being able to express my emotions. That was really invaluable. And I think that's probably, that was probably a real turning point in my life. I mean, it's been so long ago now, and I can't remember even why I quit. I think I saw her for a couple years and it was, you know, it wasn't any, there weren't any great revelations that came out of it. And I wasn't totally honest with her about everything either. What, what did you hold back and why? <sighs> I held back the fact that my mother beat me repeatedly when I was young. Because it seems like it'd be the perfect safe place to talk about that. But I wasn't able to talk about that or admit that to myself until maybe three years ago. What? Yep. That's so funny because <laughs> that's exactly my timeline, but because mine is around sexual abuse, right? I can say, well, because there's so much sex, uh, shame attached to sex. But with your thing... I suppose that you blame yourself too as a Because I a was kid. bad, Paul. I deserved it. I was rotten to the core. That's why she didn't want to hit me. She had to. That's what I told myself. 
So it wasn't that you were hiding it from your therapist. It's that you didn't think it was. It's a, is it yeah. that you didn't think it was a valid thing? Or I mean, why? Help me it understand. Was, it was a beautiful stew of a lot of things. It was. Well, when I grew up, people spanked their kids, so there was that. I mean. I don't think everybody hit their kids until they fainted the way it happened with me. But there was... She would spank you until you fainted or she would... Yeah. Um, Then there was that. And then there was also, again, this protection thing. I didn't... I needed to protect her because she was fragile. And if I didn't protect her, something awful would happen and I might get hit again. So, I mean, that lasted, that lasted until she died. Tell me about that thing that you you said to your husband in the car. Which thing? You shared it with me in an email. Okay, give me a you, little you more You said, I'm, I, I, I think when my mom dies. <gasps> yeah, we were on um, our way to... My mom was in the hospital. My dad had just called to say she was in the hospital. And he said it wasn't serious. We didn't, they lived in Arizona. He said it wasn't serious. We didn't need to come. But a friend of his called and said, you need to come. It's very serious. So again, there's that whole protection thing. My dad didn't want to bother us. Anyhow, so we're in the car on the way to visit my mom at the hospital, which would have been, which turned out to be the last time. And I said, I think I'm going to be much happier once my mom dies. And my husband, who was never a fan, said, yeah, you will be. And it's turned out to be true. Which, yeah, it's kind of an awful thing to admit. But, yeah, it's been really freeing. You know, I don't think there's anything awful about something that's true yeah even if you're right even if it doesn't make us look good and i don't think that's the case with you right um i think that's just a as as i've heard people call it before that's a normal reaction to an abnormal situation Mm -hmm. or a a healthy reaction to an unhealthy situation right right because it's not quote-unquote abnormal it's as common as yeah sadly as 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 you can imagine You being a regular listener, I know you've heard the thing that I shared about the time I was staying with my mom and I woke up earlier than her and I walked past her bedroom and the door was open and she was asleep and I thought, I hope she never wakes up. And then I felt like a terrible person and then my recovery kicked in and I said, that's on her. Yeah, and that's true. And it's, all I can say is when I said that in the car, there was just this lightness to me. It was like this kind of a lightning bolt. It's like you let a wall down. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been what my life's been about since then. It's like you let out the most profound thing that you weren't allowing yourself to think or feel. Yeah. I bet you thought or felt that when you were five years old, that I can't wait to get away from this person. Well, I I remember one of my tasks or chores as I was a kid was to clean the... um, shower and i remember cleaning the shower with the water coming down on me 
thinking that I was a princess in a fairy tale and the Wicked Witch was beating me. And it was such a, such a familiar scenario. But then I could turn off the water. So I felt like I'd won. So, you know, it doesn't take a therapist to kind of extrapolate that to my mom and how just didn't want her there. But at the same time, she was the person whose approval I craved more than anybody in the world. Isn't that crazy? Oh, my God. Yes. And I still hear her voice occasionally. What does it say? Oh, it's always critical. But now I can shrug it off. Do you ever say or think a rebuttal in your head? Oh, the number of times I've just screamed, fuck you. Out louder in your head. Oh, out loud. Out loud? Yeah, it's worked. Good for you. <laughs> well, I started reading about this um, doctor, Dr. I think it's John Sarno. Yes, he did yes. the back book, wrote yes. the book about. Yes. Yeah. And you work through your pain by looking at the emotions. And so after my mom died, I started thinking, wait, there's something to this. And so one of the exercises I kept doing was just, you know, screaming, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, to my mom. You try not to do it in a crowded place or anything. Fuck you, mom. (laughs) Somebody looks over you, too. (laughs) Yeah. We could have our own support group. Yeah. So talk about where you're... At today, because I, I also want to get more into the details of fibromyalgia okay. and and what the the emotional toll of it. Because you know, certainly, it's important to talk about the way it expresses itself physically. But I think the ripples from it, from what it sounds like, are so varied and right. so everywhere. Yeah. I think that's absolutely I want to make sure we don't skip over over that. Um, Well, today, things are great. I was back in therapy for about six months last spring just to kind of of work on some stuff. And just I've I've realized I'm a woman of many decades now, and my life isn't going to go on forever. And I need to do what I can to make myself as happy as I can. And as I've learned to express myself more, to reach out to other people more, to kind of form my own community, the pain dissipates. So, you know, like everyone else, I'm working on myself constantly, but I can really say, and it's honest. I mean, I've always said it, but this time it's honest. I'm happy. And it just feels great, and it's it's possible. So where's the where's the pain at these days? If if when was it the worst? Was it ever a ten? Again, those numbers they don't mean anything to me because it's always been. Re- you know, I don't relative. I don't have a compare. Yeah. Um, but I I guess I would say not ten compared to other people, but in terms of if you had a moment where oh for me it was the greatest. Right. When was it a 10 on your scale? Probably, and I'd never thought of this, right after I got married, in the first couple years of marriage. And I think it's because I wasn't used to the intimacy. And there was, I had to be accountable. 
And I couldn't, it wasn't like dating. I couldn't go away mm-hmm. and kind of recharge and put on my new face and be pleasant. It was constant. Marriage was 24 hours a day, and it was rocky there for a couple years. And I think, I think that's when I first, I felt the most pain because I was so unsure of myself. What were the pains other than the cement and the body hurting? And was it any, were there migraines as yeah, well? Yeah, there were migraines, a lot of migraines then. And also I get pain between my shoulder blades. Mm-hmm. That's one of the, um, there's like 18 trigger points in your body that a rheumatologist will kind of poke at to see if you have pain and then make a diagnosis. And that's a real common one. For fibromyalgia is right between your shoulder blades. Was your mom's beating of you strictly limited to the spanking, or was there other types of physical abuse? No, she'd slap. Slap she you in slap. the face, yeah. slap you in the body? Yeah. yeah. Okay. There, yeah. No, I don't think she ever actually spanked. Slapping was her forte. And was it sometimes without warning? Oh, always. Oh, that had to have been terrifying. Yeah. It really was. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. Well, and I'm still, it's, I'm like a feral cat. If somebody approaches me too quickly or, I mean, the first time I ever admitted that my mom beat me, my husband and I were in a car and we were having an argument and I was kind of egging him on. I knew I was doing it. I was needling him. And then he turned towards me and I said, don't hit me. And he'd never come so close as he would never hit me. And it really freaked him out. And he said, why would you say that? And I had to admit that it was the situation that was so close that I was, somebody was upset with me and I thought it was going to happen. So it's really, it's like a muscle memory. So, yeah, it's really terrifying when the person you rely on in your world to care for you can turn around and slap you silly. You know, I always, I I think of when you describe something like that, I think about like when there's an accident or something, like when 9-11 hit, this seems like a weird connection, but bear with me. Like when 9-11 happened, we didn't know when it was going to end. Right, right. Now we can look back on it, and we can see it now that it's kind of contained right, to right. those three days or whatever. Right, but it, remember it, it that was, feeling? It was like, you, yeah. you don't know. And I think when you're living with a parent who's abusive, you don't know where the beginning and end of it is. No. And so you're then going to carry that out into the world. And if somebody's mad at you, you you don't know if, no. where is this going to go? Where's the end to this going to be? How... Yeah, you know, how, how, how far cr- will how it How crazy escalate? is it going to get? Right. Hold on for one second. I just sure. I, I think we got some visitors. I'm going to close our door. Okay. This is so fun. Okay. <laughs> uh, talk about the the difficulty in the in the the intimacy with your husband when you were first um was it would there be flashbacks or um feelings of just not wanting to be hugged or touched or no it wasn't really physical intimacy it was 
emotional. I've always needed a lot of just space to myself. I've always enjoyed a lot of time alone because I could control that. Another person entering my little fortress of solitude, I didn't know how to behave. I didn't know. I wanted to please. I wanted approval. But I didn't know all how to get there. And the last thing I wanted to do was be myself because I was too emotional. I was bad. So it was really confusing. So then, you know, you get married in the first flush of love and, you know, you've gone through all the gifts and everything and then you're stuck (laughs) (laughs) with this other person 24 hours a day. What the hell? We got to put that on a wedding cake. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I was old when I got married. I was 35. I waited a long time for that reason. But he wore me down. But we fought the first couple years. And I think a lot of it was just my uncomfortableness with the situation and how I wanted to be alone. It must have been baffling to him. Did he take it personally? Fortunately, he's got, he's pretty well adjusted himself and he, he was confused because why did I say I wanted to be there when, you know, I was telling him to go away and leave me alone. That wasn't his idea of marriage. So yeah, he, he took it personally, but he hung in there. So what changed? I think a lot of it was just familiarity. I got comfortable. Um, the one thing we've always have is we've always had is we make each other laugh, and so I could always rely on that. And I think I relaxed into it. I think we both did to a great extent, but I think I just finally realized, okay, I'd rather be with him than without him. So just relax a little and see what that's like. And 18 years later, I'm still relaxing. You know, it's funny when we're isolators, I think sometimes the fear of having other people around is they bring with them a a subtle fear of the unknown. Yes. Are they going to want too much from me? Right. Oh, that was it exactly. Are they going to, was he going to discover who I really was? Because I wasn't ready to show that to anyone. Do you numb out with anything? I probably drink a little too much. I have a glass of wine every night. So there's that. That doesn't Um, sound excessive to me. No, but if you knew how much I looked forward to it, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I don't... No, I've never like been a binge drinker or anything, thank God. Um, I watch a lot of reality TV, and that's quite numbing. And I... I do, I wool gather a lot. I just, I can sit in a space by myself and just let my imagination run. I just, I think a lot, I guess. What did you call it? Wool gathering. Oh. I don't even know where that comes from, but it's an old word for just spacing, spacing out. Spacing out. I'd yeah, daydreaming. I've yeah. never heard that. Well, I, I gave you something Thank tonight. you. You gave me a lot of things <laughs> tonight. Uh, 
What do you say to the person, because I know there are people out there listening, and you know me, I always want everybody to feel included, and I want everybody at the end of the podcast to not feel like they've been left in the dust right. or their thing has been minimized, which I certainly don't think you have done oh. at all. But the fact that you have begun to process some of this stuff and it seems to be related to some of your pain decreasing. Right. What do you say to the person who has been in therapy and is still in physical pain and doesn't know what it's coming from or are they not opening are they not letting everything go in therapy oh geez are they i mean what why would they still i would never stand in judgment of that i think it's just kind of the luck of the draw i think it's well for me i think you know how people say that depression is anger turned Inwards. inwards for me i think fibromyalgia was hurt and pain turned literally inwards. And I think everybody has varying degrees of it. And I would never say to somebody who's in chronic pain, oh, you're not doing it right. You're not dealing with it correctly. Because I don't think there's one way to deal with it. And I don't know if for everybody it's escapable. Yeah, for some people, it might be the equivalent of uh, a mole on the nose. That person is a cancer survivor, but so is the person, uh, or that person is a cancer patient, as is the person that has bone cancer and has a week to live. Right, So right. Well, and I can sit here and say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm working through things. Things are great. But last week, I had a disagreement with my boss, and my back was in spasms for two days. So... It's all a process. And I guess all I would say to somebody is that you're not alone. There are other people out there that know what you're feeling. And fucking believe you. Yes. Yes. And know how isolating it is and how, how horrible it is when you tell somebody you're in pain. They can't see it. They've never experienced anything like it. And they say, oh, no, you're not. You're making it up. I I don't think you're making it Have up. Have you done any uh, or heard of somatic therapy? Yes, but I haven't done it. Have you? Uh, I haven't, but I, I've thought about uh, going to, to try it because I often feel like um, like I have pain trapped in my body, hmm. um, but I, I'm not sure. We, we had a um, guest, uh, Gillian uh, oh, Callahan Sachere. Yeah. And she did this thing with a full-spectrum doula um, that sounded so profound. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I've I, I've had people suggest to me a somatic right therapy. So I I just wondered if that was yeah no, and it's something out. I'm not ruling anything out. Well, I mentioned to you that I'm in the middle of a rolfing mm-hmm. ten session thing now, and just having someone touch my body so deeply. That, I mean, there are times it's quite painful, but it feels... Deeply physically, not yes, emotionally. Yeah. Okay. It feels like an emotional release to me. And I think that shows that there are emotions mm-hmm. really deeply, I think, in every fiber of everybody's body. I had a cry the other morning about four mornings ago. 
And I was just at my wit's end where I was feeling this emptiness in my chest and this sadness. And I could intellectually know what it was probably coming from, the issues and all of that. But I couldn't. um, And I just started talking to the universe, higher power, whatever you want to call it. And I was just saying, I'm so tired of feeling confused. I'm so tired of feeling empty. I'm so tired of feeling needy. I'm so fucking tired. Why? Why are you doing this to me? And pretty soon I started crying. I'm not kidding you. Like I was four years old. Like, you know, the, the, when you wail. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and about 10 minutes later, I felt so much lighter. And since then, my limbs have felt different, mostly my legs. And I've just, um, the neediness that I felt in my chest is is not what it not what it used to be and um i think there's something to be said because most every time i have one of those cries my body feels differently right no afterwards. it is a release yeah. you're getting that stuff out and i think whether it be through crying through screaming through somebody pounding on you yeah cuz we trap it inside because that's a safe place to do it you're only hurting yourself when you trap the pain inside and for me that was a much safer outlet than expressing it are they is your uh, rolfing uh person finding pain focused in specific areas of your body yeah she's found a lot of it in my shoulder blades where i've reported it to her but were you frequently hit there? No, no. Okay. I think it's just, just one, where you yeah, it's it. just where I carry my stress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also I was plus really, the weight of the world on your shoulders. A lot of times you gotta you gotta tighten up your your God, shoulders to true. keep, keep but, the, the globe afloat. You know, and nobody thanks me for that, Paul. And I'm glad you've acknowledged it. I'm actually gonna put you in charge of writing all the thank you letters from every person on earth because <laughs> that would only be fitting that we put it back on you. Fair enough. <laughs> if you don't, you're not a perfect person and you've let us all down. Myself, most of all. Talk about the ripples of having fibromyalgia and talk to our listener out there and me who doesn't understand all of the ways it affects your life other than the physical manifestation of pain. All I can say is imagine that you're in the beginnings of the flu. Your muscles ache all over. They feel really heavy. And somebody comes up and tells you that they really want you to go to this party that night. And then pressures you to go to the party. You feel so unheard. Because you can say, no, I can't. I don't feel well. But it's not, there's nothing obvious. So. Do they know that you have fibromyalgia, that person? Nobody believes in fibromyalgia. No. I mean, I have told every friend I've ever had and they get it. But again, they know me and they've seen me. They've, I guess they've seen me pretend because I've spent a lot of my life pretending I'm not in pain because it's the only way I could live my life. 
so you think they think you're an exaggerator or you conveniently make it up when you don't want to say something else? I think they think I'm a hypochondriac and kind of, and this could be me putting it on them, but I'm kind of a malingerer. And what, what does a malingerer mean? And I love it. It's a great, it's a great term. There's something a little bit wrong with you, but you're making it worse because you don't want to do something or you're kind of feeling sorry for yourself, oh, okay. you know. It's, it just sounds like something that would come out of Dickens' mouth. <laughs> probably did. It's probably yeah. one of his characters. A layabout, a malingerer. <laughs> yes, exactly. So that's it. You, you cut yourself off socially if you, you know, if you can't do something because you don't feel well, but you look fine. Um, I think I've been a lot bitchier to people than I've ever meant to be because I get real short when I don't feel well. And I don't think people understand that. And that's, you know, that's a shame and something I try to work on, but sometimes you can't help it. If you don't feel good and you snap, that happens. Um, I think the hardest thing is just not feeling heard and not feeling understood because nobody really wants to think about constant pain. I think it's almost too unbearable for people to acknowledge. And for a long time, my husband was having trouble understanding me. And finally, he said, I don't want to think of you in constant pain. So I turned my mind off. What did you think or feel when he said that? Eh, kind of thought it was a cop out. I mean, I thought it was sweet. And I can see that, but it's not helping me. And if I'm brave enough to explain it, then he's got to acknowledge it. And he does now. And for me, one of the things, I'm also an incredible introvert. So. Have you won awards at it? Yeah. I got you just, some in my you, purse. You just you haven't just, gone out to pick them up yet. <laughs> exactly. Trying to convince them to <laughs> deliver them. Too many people. <laughs> I don't feel well today, Paul. <laughs> um. So if I spend a lot of time around a lot of people, like at a party or something, then I need to kind of burrow back and recenter myself. And my husband is not an introvert. And so he's just always talking. He just wants to discuss the party and who did what and who left with whom. And it just grates on me. And so until I figured out what was going on, I'd be really bitchy to him after I'd had a lot of time with people because I just need to be alone. So that's one thing I think. Do you think on a certain level, too, you were envious of his ability to thrive? Yes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, I feel that way around Christmas where I just look at people who enjoy yeah. it and just think, fuck you. Yeah. Fuck you. You get to experience something that intellectually looks so awesome, but I can't connect to. And yes. it just makes me feel so less than. Oh, of course. And it's a horrible feeling. I feel the same way about parades. Yes. <laughs> you do? And, mu and musicals. Oh, my I God. I fucking hate musicals. It's like people uh, are happy for no reason. And they're singing? Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Oh, it's well, just a... How are you on fireworks? I like fireworks. All right. See, I've... <laughs> I've come around to fireworks, but for a long time, they involved a lot of people, 
a lot of noise, and I didn't quite get the big deal about fireworks. So, I do have a general anxiety though being out in a crowd watching fireworks. And my wife and I tend to go watch some place that's kind of isolated to do it mm. because when I get around a lot of people, I'm afraid that some of them are going to throw fireworks off. Because right. people, as you know, can be really fucking stupid with them. And I remember oh, totally, one, and they're drunk. Yeah. And one time we were in Chicago years ago, and there was uh, somebody lit off like an M80 in a group of us, and it was oh, only geez. like 15 feet away. And it now there's always that fear that there's going to be another one of those idiots right. when I'm around that. So, but I aesthetically, I fucking love All fireworks. Right. Well. I'm sorry, I yeah. kind of don't get them. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I get that you don't get it. Um, any other ripples that... I think the biggest thing also is that I don't, in spite of my prattling on tonight, I don't really like talking about it to people because I don't want to be defined by it. And that's that's really hard because it's there. It affects everything I say or do or think. I think because it's a it's a constant. It's just like my being tall. It's it's just a constant, and it it has to affect who you are. But I don't want to be perceived as weak, and that's in my head. Or be pitied. Yes. Yeah. So it's anybody that has any kind of chronic pain or what do they call it? Chronic fatigue, you know, anything like that. It's really horrible because, again, you can't see it, but you definitely feel it. It's like depression. Yes. It's very much. Yeah. And depression goes along with, I think, all of these How kinds could of conditions. It not? Yeah. Because you're different. And you don't know why you are the way you are. And that's really sad. Mm -hmm. So if at your worst, let's say when you had just gotten married right. and that was at 10, right. where do you feel like you're at nowadays? Nowadays, it's, it's a low level constant, maybe of about a three. And then when there's flare ups, and they usually happen when something really emotional has happened to me and I don't express it or I express it in a way that I'm ashamed of. That'll happen a lot. Um, then I kind of get back to about an eight, but that only lasts a few days because I can kind of work myself out of it. If I know if I know what's going on and I can acknowledge it, then it kind of recedes. Have you ever had respites where it was at a zero? No. Mm -mm. I'm so sorry. Well That's me pitying you. Yeah. I just want to make you feel bad. I know. Call me malinger and I'll be really <laughs> happy. <laughs> No, I don't think I have. But again, I don't I don't know what that would be it's like. It's your normal. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to pause right here and give a little bit of uh, love to uh, a new sponsor we have, uh, Rooted, which is in the Chicago area. And it's a, uh, a, 
a gym, if you will, for uh, working out your emotions. You know, listening to this interview with Terry, it's abundantly clear that expressing your emotions can help you become more healthy. Uh, research uh, shows that practicing emotional self-care results in a lot of things, uh, better physical health, uh, improved de- decision-making, increased self-confidence, uh, improved relationships, and uh, basically a better quality of life. Um, so uh, you drop by, it's like a gym, uh, you can do different kinds of activities to express your emotions, uh, visual art, movement, drama, writing, music, whatever you want. Uh, it's judgment-free, unless I'm there, in which case I'm going to let you know that your vase is shitty and that you should give up. Um, but it's in Chicago, so there's a good chance I'm not going to drop by. Anyway, uh, in all seriousness, the focus there, it's uh, it's on process over over product, and there's no experience required. Uh, like I said, just drop in like it's at the... It's at the gym. Uh, it's located in the Wicker Park neighborhood of Chicago. It's having a membership drive uh, uh, on site from May 4th to the 10th with free sessions so you can try it out before you join. And a uh, different art form will be offered every weekday evening from 6 to 7.30 and then on Saturday and Sunday from 1 to 2.30. And uh, to learn more about it or to sign up, go to rootedcenter.com. That's R-O-O-T-E-D-C-E-N-T-E-R.com. Anything else you want to share before we do some uh, fears and loves? I guess the only thing I want to say is anybody out there in any kind of chronic physical problem you know you're not alone and I believe you Paul believes you and keep working on it I think it can get better and distance yourself if possible from the people who don't believe you and tell you yeah all right give me some uh, give me some fears all right my fears, I realized as I was writing them today, all have to do with lack of control. So I'm not better at all is what I'm telling you. <laughs> okay. I fear I will feel pain in every fiber of my body and be totally incapacitated. Uh, I was telling Terry before we started rolling that uh, my back went out last night, the worst that it's ever, ever gone out. And... I had this fear that oh now it's here. This is the this is the thing that I've been waiting for. This is where I have to go on pain meds and then I become addicted and then I lose my sobriety and then I destroy my life. That was that was a fear. And my wife told me she's like just stay down there on the ground because I couldn't even get up. And she just said, breathe into it, breathe into where the pain is. And I did that and took four ibuprofen and I was telling Terry today I was sprinting up the stairs and it is. I thought we, I was going to have to cancel yeah. on you tonight, uh, last night, and um, yeah. So something just about wanted breath. To share that. Yeah. I fear my husband will die before I do, and I will develop locked-in syndrome, like the man in the movie, the diving bell and the butterfly, and none of my friends will help me kill myself, even though that's what I want to do. That's heavy. Well, again, it's control that I'll be all locked in. My brain will be working. And I want to kill myself because I don't want to live like that. And nobody will be there to help me. Mm. Leave it to a French movie to bring everything down. <laughs> well, I helped. You'll notice I'm, I'm a real buzzkill. Give me another one. 
I fear inadvertently hurting someone when I say something I think is funny and they never tell me and then hold it against me forever. Oh my God, you've just described my 20s. My teens and my 20s. <laughs> Did you fear it? Uh, no, I wasn't even aware of yeah. it until I got sober. And then I saw how often I used people to to elevate myself by putting them down. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's a real fear I have. Great. <laughs> you want more? Yeah. I got tons. I fear talking too much. For years, I was scared to open up to people. And now that I seem to have worked through that, I'm afraid I don't let other people talk because I'm so excited not to be scared. You don't strike me as that type of person at all. Because I, I didn't experience that doing the podcast really? with you. No. Oh, bless you. Felt very nice back and forth. Okay, good. Yeah. Oh, I fear Paul won't always be there to tell me I'm okay. <laughs> Should I keep going? Yeah. All right. I fear my need for approval. I fear running out of money in my old age and having to live in a nursing home that takes only Medicare and becoming a urine-soaked, drooling old woman whom no one visits because I chose not to have children. Oh, my God, do I relate to that one so deeply. But I go one further, and it's one of the caretakers is um, – abusive and nobody oh, else knows it gee, so that they, hadn't occurred to me yeah well suck on that thanks okay i fear that when my dad dies my brother and i will lose contact because even though we get along really well and love one another we're both really bad about keeping in touch give me one more and then we'll go to some okay. loves I fear becoming homeless because even though I'm very good about saving money, something I can't control will happen. Yeah, I have that one too. I have that one too. I think it's why I get so triggered oftentimes by um, Wall Street greed because I think, well, that of course could so easily. I mean, it did in 2007. Totally. I, all the money that I had kind of stocked away for retirement, half of it was wiped out. And it's like, oh, I'm going to have to work for the rest of my life wow. now. And that was out of your control. It was. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. I mean, nobody forced me to invest it in the things I invested it in. But nonetheless, but, you were yeah. doing what you were supposed to do, yeah. saving and investing. Yeah, and I was like, yeah. I could see a light at the end of the tunnel. And, oh, uh, yeah. Geez. But you know what? 99% uh, of the people I know are in the same fucking boat right. that I'm in. Right. And we're looking at having to work for the rest of our lives. Right. And Well, and that's the great fallacy about the american dream that each generation is going to get better that is no, not happening no ma'am you know but i am grateful that i found something to do that i fucking love yeah come on yeah that's great it's i am it's you that. it's you should because <laughs> it's fucking <laughs> it's awesome uh let's do some loves all right i love going to bed my alarm set the white noise machine on the blankets and sheets positioned just so, the book I'm reading on the nightstand, the water glass full, the heat pad warmed up from my lower back. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I love uh, on nights when my circulation is good. Sometimes my anxiety will make my circulation terrible, so my hands and feet are constantly cold. Oh. But I love a night when my circulation is good, my anxiety is low, and I put on a super super thick pair of hiking socks oh. and sit in my recliner and just feel relaxed and warm yeah the warmness it's yeah. great i think it's like being a kid just being swaddled and yeah. yeah 
I love waking up in the morning, opening my eyes, and seeing my husband and our two cats asleep next to me. I love the the noise Herbert makes when I let him and Ivy out into the backyard, and he has to pee first, so he immediately goes to a bush, and he's kind of stuck at the bush while he's peeing, and Ivy's rooting around, and he thinks that she's getting into something that he should be a part of, something oh, important, no. and so he cries like a little baby, but he's stuck peeing, so he'll cry for like 15 seconds. And it's just so, it's so human, the sound that comes out of them. It's, it's adorable and sad at the same time. <laughs> just the, the ridiculousness that what could she possibly be getting into in our backyard that is interesting or important. Right. And that it won't wait right. until he's finished. Yeah. I love remembering the first time my family went to the movies together and my little brother asked me if the aisles were where people went to sleep once it got dark. Cute. <laughs> I love the shit that kids ask. Um, you know what I wanted to ask you is a moment or two that you shared with your mom that was really nice or sweet. Oh. If you can think of, of one or two. When I was a senior in high school, I, ca- I got in a car accident. And my best friend was in a car next to me so she wasn't in the car that um got hit and she called my parents and i will never forget the sight of my mom on a really cold winter more or winter evening rushing her car up to the accident and just coming over and hugging me and i felt so i felt really loved and that she cared and that you know, I didn't get a lot of that. So that was a really good moment. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. Um, should I go back to loves? Yeah. I love sleeping on hot concrete. Oh, that's a good one. I've always done that my whole life. I just, it, when it's hot, I'll go out on the sidewalk and fall asleep. Does it help the pain? Yeah, it's great. Have you ever gone to get a hot rock massage? Mm-hmm. I've done that. And then, you know, you can go to Asian spas where there's like a jade floor and you can fall asleep mm. on that. And it feels just great. You should also listen to the Rolling Stones album, Hot Rocks. That might help you. God, that'd be so much cheaper. Thank you. <laughs> um, give me one more. Okay, let's make a good one. Oh. I love driving barefoot in the summer with a fountain Diet Coke, all the windows rolled down, singing along to the hits from when I was a teenager. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Terry Hartman, thank you so much for um, supporting the show and uh, being such a a great guest and uh, sharing your life with us in a way that really helped me more understand what it is that... Um, people who live with fibromyalgia uh, go through. And um, Thank you. Many, many thanks to Terry. She, uh, she feels like the older sister I never had. Really like talking to her. Uh, before I take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys there's a couple of different ways to support the show if you feel so inclined. You can support us uh, financially by going to the website mentalpod.com and making either a one-time PayPal donation 
or becoming a recurring monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. It means the world to me, and uh, we really could uh, use your help. Uh, it's super simple. There's a little button on our website. It says PayPal. Click on it and uh, take it from there. It's super simple. Um, you can also support us financially by uh, next time you're you're going to buy something at Amazon, enter through the search portal on our homepage. It's on the right-hand side about halfway down. And um, Amazon will give us a couple of nickels if you buy something and it doesn't cost you anything. Um, you can also support us non-financially by going to iTunes and writing something nice about us. That boosts our ranking. That brings more people to the show. And you can spread the word about the podcast through social media. That helps greatly. And uh, I forgot to, in the opening of the show, uh, I've been giving you guys updates on uh, my uh, my depression. Uh, I had a really great day today. Um, the last two days, exercise like crazy, didn't feel a bit of endorphins. And then I realized, oh my God, maybe um, I'm low on electrolytes because I've been sweating so much because I sweat like a pig when I exercise. And so today I took electrolytes and I felt the endorphins when I worked out. So uh, note to self, don't be a fucking jackass. Don't sweat out eight liters of water and then uh, not put any electrolytes back in. Uh, This is a struggle in a sentence. This is filled out by a girl. She's between 16 and 19, calls herself Ari. About her depression, she writes, I want to cry, but the tears won't come. I'm numb, and I cannot let anyone know. Boy, do I relate to that one. I don't know so much the I can't let anyone know, but the uh, sometimes feeling like I want to cry, but there's no tears. Um, About her anorexia, she writes, finally reaching out for help, but scolded because I'm too fat to be anorexic. Don't let anybody ever tell you that in a support group, that you're too heavy to be in uh, an eating disorder uh, support group. It, it is the feelings that matter, not the body, what the body looks like. That, that makes me angry that people do that sometimes. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself Shades of Pale. And uh, she writes... And her issue is codependency. She writes, I've begun to realize that my mother and I have a very codependent relationship. Please don't misunderstand. She's a very compassionate, supportive, and dependable woman. I love her dearly. But we text multiple times a day and talk on the phone two or three times a day. It's all generally pleasant, but my mood is often brought down by her as if she is feeling anxiety or stress or inadequacy. Sometimes I don't feel the need or desire to engage so frequently, but I don't want to hurt her feelings. I am her best friend. That is always a red flag when somebody says that they are, they are, their parent is their best friend or the parent says that their child is their best friend. Um, she is a, a very responsible, well-educated member of society, but sometimes I feel like her emotional life preserver and constant source of validation. I'm an ICU nurse and moved out of state last fall to be with my wonderful boyfriend. Sometimes I still feel guilty for putting some distance between my mom and I. What if the harrowing, vague black cloud of something bad happens and I'm not there for her? At times I feel crippled by her love and her need for me. I sincerely hope I don't sound like I am unappreciative of my mother. I know there are many men and women alike who long for the love of mother. I suppose nothing is without struggle and complexity. And it sounds like there's a lot of complexity in your relationship with your mom. But... um it is definitely codependent, and I highly, highly recommend um, going to talk 
to a therapist about it or getting into a support group because something as complex as a relationship between uh, a child and a parent is not going to be fixed by reading a paragraph or two in a book, in my opinion. It's going to be an ongoing process because codependent people don't usually give up enmeshment without some type of fight, be it conscious or subconscious. Just my two cents. Uh, This is a shame and secret survey filled out by um, a trans female uh, who calls herself Gemerald. Uh, she's never been sexually abused. And I just wanted to read a couple excerpts from it. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to be a woman the size of a planet with huge tits and a massive penis, and I want to fuck the earth until it crumbles beneath me, killing everyone on it. Uh, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell people I'm actually a woman because I'm a woman and it hurts to not be seen as a woman. Imagining myself as a woman is the first time I felt right about myself and optimistic about my future, and I want that to be my life outside my head as well. And Also, I want to tell someone that I will be a fuck goddess, destroyer of worlds, and we will wreck some shit. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. This is... This is an awful moment filled out by... Oh, I love this one. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself... Uh, I want to go where everybody knows I'm lame. And he writes, So I'm attending my teen daughter's art gallery opening, and because of my dysfunctional upbringing, after less than five minutes, I already wanted to bolt. I wandered around aimlessly, ate a few cheese cubes. My mother, anxiety-ridden, verbally inappropriate, prone to snippy insults, a major codependent in regards to my narcissistic father, actually came into the gallery to view my daughter's artwork. My mother never actually wants to be anywhere. Obviously, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, as I have the same problem. Mom's presence exacerbated my fight-or-flight chemicals soaking my brain. She immediately made a rude comment about the overpriced and amateurish artwork. We wandered, we wandered, oh, we wandered into a crowded side gallery where you could meet an artist. Mom starts running her trap, yammering about how she's practically best friends with this artist, grew up with her, went to parties in high school with her, etc. Let me make this crystal clear. The artist is actually standing right next to us. I'll call her Sue Smith. Mom keeps it up saying that she's friends with the artist's parents, that the artist is the sweetest thing, etc., etc. The actual artist, Sue Smith, standing right next to my mother and me, says, um, I'm her. Mom, not quite getting it, smiles and says how she and the artist used to play in a treehouse together when they were both girls. They had sleepovers, etc. The artist, a real bohemian-looking woman, someone my homophobic and racist mother would never actually befriend, motions to her name badge and says, I'm Sue Smith. I'm the artist. I painted every painting in here. I don't think we've ever met. I excused myself to find the cheese cubes in a bathroom as quickly as possible to down a Xanax or two. (laughs) Oh, God, do I love a good, awfulsome moment. It's Christmas. It is Christmas. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself over the rainbow. She's straight. She's in her 20s. She was raised in a totally chaotic environment 
was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, she writes, I was seven and my 13-year-old brother molested me for months. My mother would leave me alone with him overnight while she went out and partied. I later found this out. My brother would abuse me and then make me take a bath. While I was in the bath, he would come in and tell me he was sorry and that he loved me. Uh, she's also been emotionally abused. I had an ex-girlfriend that would beat me up when we were drunk. She would always break my glasses when we fought. Um, any positive experiences with your abusers? After working a 12-step program, I wrote a letter to my brother letting him know that I forgive him for what happened. I felt a sense of freedom from that letter, but it was very emotional to write it. He can't forgive himself, though. He is still strung out on heroin. Darkest thoughts. I fantasize about killing myself and how I would do it. I like to think about the effect it would have on my loved ones, and I wonder if people would miss me. Darkest secret. I have prostituted, prostituted myself. I had sex with a 16-year-old girl and I was 23. I've stolen from all of my friends at least once. I use my addictions as an excuse for all of my problems. Well, that sounds like you're on the road to recovery, though, and that's that's huge. And thank you, thank you for your honesty. This is um, Struggle in a Sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself My Silly, My Cilium. And about her depression, she writes, An empty, cold, familiar house filled with stale air and only metal folding chairs to sit on. That one rang a bell when I read that. That is so, that is such a good struggle in a sentence. About uh, her alcoholism and drug addiction. Comforting friends that won't let me have any experiences without them coming with. About her anorexia. Control can use to induce hypomania for productivity and depression. I had no idea that that was possible. Um, and uh, being a cancer survivor, she writes, um, cancer was an experience that I am still processing, very complicated. Why was this condition, condition given so much legitimacy when my borderline personality disorder is much more likely to kill me? That is fucking heavy. That is heavy. Wow, I learned so much doing this show, and especially about borderline personality disorder. It just sounds like um, such a such a handful to live with. Um, this is the same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself another manic depressive, and about living with bipolar. She writes, "Death would be a welcome respite from this endless cycle of madness." And about anorexia. Uh, she writes uh, that the very essence of life is trying to kill you. That is a certainly a an irony. A snapshot from her life. I've been stuck in a depressive phase of my bipolar for a while now. And the other day, my six-year-old daughter came into my room and asked me, are you going to work today or just bed again? I didn't realize she had noticed. Of course she had. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, I can't imagine how hard that's got to be being a parent and living with that. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Winter's Breeze. And she writes, The ultimate happiest moment was at the age of 43, and I made love with my husband, and finally, the first time ever, being 100% vulnerable and open and feeling that connection with a human being. I've been married to him for 20 years, and I finally trusted him and let him in. I felt tears, happy tears, as though I was a virgin and it was my first trust. That is how long it took to take off the mask. Wow. Beautiful. This is, hold on, sip a tea. Don't push me. Don't you dare push me. 
I always think about the people out there that have misophonia when I drink. Don't smack your lips, Paul. You have to please everyone. This is a shame and secret survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself C, S-E-A, and she is straight. She's in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, and I just wanted to read uh, an excerpt from it. Um, She was emotionally abused, and she writes, My dad was an alcoholic for the first 18 years of my life. He could be a very angry drunk and very irritable before he had his first drink after work every day would scream at the top of his lungs until his face turned so red it looked purple. He would slam his hand down on tables and walls to emphasize his disappointment in me. His anger terrified me. He once threw the couch because I pushed my brother down the stairs. He never actually hit me, but his anger came out physically as well as verbally. He would belittle me all the time, calling me stupid and useless because I hadn't emptied the dishwasher. He would tell me I was a burden. I worked so hard to get good grades and succeed, but no matter what I could do, I could never outrun the alcoholic anger and disappointment. And then to the question, have you had any positive experiences with the abusers? She writes, absolutely. I love my father and always have. When he wasn't angry or too intoxicated, he was incredibly loving. He's a big softy. He shows his vulnerability and wears his heart on his sleeve. He's treated me like a princess, always telling me I'm beautiful. He would take me camping with him, without my mother, to show my brother and I his appreciation for nature. He taught me all about art and film and music and always encouraged me to create whatever I wanted. He was great when he wasn't drunk, and I wouldn't have the interest I do today without him. He's been sober for going on five years now. We now have a great relationship. He's healthy and he's a completely different person. I haven't seen that kind of anger in years and he's apologized for being an alcoholic father. I'm really proud of him, but I definitely feel like I am still damaged by what he did. I feel like I can't get over it because it affects so many areas of my life, especially my self-esteem and my relationships with men. I also hate that I still play the victim after the crisis is over. I, You know, I, I don't... I'm not saying that you you don't play the victim because um, I don't know you, but any person that was raised in an alcoholic environment where a parent was abusive and alcoholic, there's going to be a way that you see the world that needs to be kind of rewired. And, um, you know, as I get on my support group soapbox, uh, Highly, highly recommend one for uh, codependents, you know, or for loved ones of of alcoholics, because the person who isn't doing the drinking but trying to please can be as sick and need as much treatment as the person. And thankfully, your dad, your dad got help, and that's beautiful. That's beautiful to read. Um, this is a struggle in a sentence uh, filled out by Claire, and she writes about her depression. Depression, chronic, moderate to severe. I'm probably just attention-seeking, and I'm just the laziest person in the world. Boy, did I relate to that one. About her dermatillomania, she writes, God, it feels good. God, it hurts. Get it off me. Get get me off me. Get rid of me. About her codependency, she writes, the only me that is really alive is the one reflected in your eyes. That's like out of a song or something. A snapshot from her life, she writes, All through high school and the first couple of years of university, I had days where I could barely walk because I had ripped so much skin off the bottom of my feet. Wow. 
Thank you for sharing that. That was such a striking image. Um, This is filled out by a girl who calls herself Marble. She's between 16 and 19. About living with an abuser, she writes, A verbally abusive mother. I wake up to her yelling. I fall asleep to her yelling. Snapshot from her life. I have social anxiety. I'm about to graduate from high school. I can't live in my house anymore, but I'm not equipped to do anything on my own. I got accepted into a good college, but I think I'm ready for it. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I took alcohol to school today to calm my anxiety. Didn't help much, and I don't think I'll do it again. I feel weak, guilty, and dirty, and I want to bang my head against the wall. Maybe I'll go insane and enter another universe or something. And I wanted to read this because I want to let you know how fucking anxious and terrified most college students are. I used to call, and I was not a crier, and I would call home sometimes just absolutely convinced that college was too much for me. And, you know, I would have gotten a D on a test and I would I would break down and cry because, you know, I, I just thought I couldn't handle it. And... Um, I know I'm not the only one that had to have had to have felt that way. So you're not alone with those feelings. Um, it's okay. It's okay to be scared and just keep putting one foot in front of the other. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being scared. This is, uh, I've got a uh, couple of good ones from uh, the being hospitalized survey. And this one was filled out by a woman who calls herself SJ. And she was first hospitalized at 17 for a suicide attempt. And then again at 25 for anorexia. And she writes, the first day was involuntary uh, due to a suicide attempt. It lasted five days. Uh, I hope, I hope the suicide attempt didn't last five days. <laughs> that would be a committed effort. Uh, she writes, I was 17, just dumped by an abusive boyfriend and really just needed an escape from my, quote, real life. I felt, com- I felt completely alone, unable to express any of the hurt I was feeling to my family or friends, and the hospital was a safe place to let the shit go. Um, be as unhappy and as messy as I needed to be. Just the elimination of my cell phone and the internet was a shift for me at that time. It helped me get through the crisis, but ultimately it was a, quote, quick quick fix because the underlying issues, depression, anxiety, anorexia, trauma, were not addressed. Second hospitalization, voluntarily hospitalized at 25 and stayed for six weeks for anorexia and depression. Rigid, highly structured, very routine environment, which sucked, but was exactly what I needed to stop my eating disorder from killing me. I've never experienced more emotion in my life than I did in those six weeks. It was horrible. It was amazing, terrifying, fun, awful, painful, beautiful, life-changing. I spent every day during those weeks wishing and working my ass off to get the fuck out of there. And every day since... Uh, discharge, there's at least one moment that has me wishing I could have that level of support back. That is profound. Thank you so much for that, SJ. This is uh, an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Forgotten Gypsy. And she writes, My mother was known for pranks, sometimes cruel and inappropriate ones. When I was 13, she committed suicide. That The day that I had to go see her dead for the first time was April 1st. 
as I walked down the walkway looking at her casket alone because my grandmother couldn't bear to be there when I saw her. I honestly walked very slowly, afraid that when I got to the casket, she was going to jump out and scare the shit out of me and yell, April Fools. Because in my 13-year-old head, this was something she would have done. But she didn't. She was still. She was very still, very silent, and very dead. Even though it's very sad, it still makes me smile for whatever reason. Thank you for that. This is another uh, being hospitalized survey filled out by a 18-year-old uh, woman who calls herself uh, Baby Flower. And why were you hospitalized? She writes, I've dealt with depression since middle school. It was deep and dark. I remember being 13 at, at the most and feeling like I could not, like if I could have enough strength to whisk myself into oblivion and to not be such a baby that it would be easier that way for not only me, but everyone I know as well. This progressed into my high school years. I would collect various heart medications and other pills from the pill cabinet when my parents weren't home or were asleep to save up just in case I needed to end everything. It was sick and twisted. Um, Describe your experience. I was hospitalized for seven days. Uh, When the old Indian man that was my therapist asked me how I was doing, I told him I liked being in the hospital. It was like a vacation. I guess that's why they kept me longer. My roommate was a lesbian uh, girl named Brittany. The only reason I specify was because she was the first homosexual friend I had because I went to a Christian high school. because I went to a Christian high school. We bonded over our anxieties and depressive thoughts. Another kid in the hospital made me a fortune teller, which I still have. All the fortunes had sweet messages, such as, your life will be wonderful, you will prosper. He told the nurse that he had to make this before he was discharged. I still keep it. It's a reminder that even when you're in the darkest of places, there is still light. Being there honestly did help. And after that, I got a job and the depression virtually vanished. I experienced so much in that week that I wouldn't change a thing, not even hitting rock bottom in order to experience what I did. I still struggle with extreme anxiety. It may be worse now, uh, worse now even, but I control it as best as I can. Thank you for that. Um, this is the same survey filled out by um, a pansexual uh, woman who calls herself Serene Serena. And she was hospitalized for extreme major depression, OCD, PTSD, several different eating disorders, general anxiety, and social anxiety. Uh, That's also known as getting uh, bang for your buck in a psych ward. Uh, Describe your experience as a patient. She writes, it happened about a month ago, and uh, I'm 16. I was taken out of school and put in an adult psych ward. Just to be clear, this was voluntary and was described to be, quote, like a health retreat. Psh, yeah. If a health retreat had people moaning and being forcibly medicated, it was the worst experience of my life. I cried for days after getting out. Uh, I cried for days after getting out. Then I was expected to dry my eyes and go to school pretending I had the flu. Sending you some love. This is a happy moment filled out by Carmen, and um, she writes, uh, After a few months of my life being completely upside down, I was determined to take time from myself and focus on my personal goals. I had so much shit up in the air. Why add a dude into the mix? 
Well, my current boyfriend felt differently. We've known each other since high school and have kept in touch on and off over the years. We reconnected in late January and have been together ever since. With things going so well, we made plans to meet each other's families over Easter weekend. After an absolutely lovely weekend, on the five-hour drive back home, he asked me if there were any podcasts we could listen to, since he knows I listen to a lot of them. After I told him about each one I listened to, he chose Ding Ding Mental Illness Happy Hour. So I pressed play on Jensen Karp's episode, and after about 45 minutes, ended up falling asleep while my boyfriend was driving. I woke up about an hour later, and he was still actively listening to the episode. We sat quietly, finishing the episode, and after it ended, had a long, open talk about mental health, anxiety, trauma, and therapy. It made me feel so seen, important, and understood. This guy wanted to not only listen to this podcast because I love it, but because he wanted to understand me better, understand the way I think, and what my journey has been like having anxiety and being medicated. It was such a gigantic symbol that this one is actually truly different. I think I'm going to keep him around. I love re- reading that because it's about me and I'm a pig. This is uh, from uh, being hospitalized survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Blighted Star. And uh, why were you hospitalized? I was hospitalized in a psychiatric uh, unit five years ago after I attempted suicide. Um, uh, yes, it helped, but I should have stayed longer as the doctor had recommended. I was so angry and scared when they transferred me from the emergency room to the psych unit. In spite of what I had done to myself, I felt like I was on a higher level than the other patients. After a couple of days, my elitist attitude disappeared. I saw that we were all in this together. I was no better than the patient in the neighboring room who claimed that Fidel Castro gave him a pair of pants. I fucking love the shit that people come up with when they are deluded. I was discharged after two weeks when I'd written a letter to the hospital's lawyer to explain why I would fare better in an outpatient treatment. I was yearning to be outdoors again. I wanted to be with my dog. I wanted to feel the warmth of the sun on me. I'd entered into the hospital as winter transitioned to spring. I did truly believe that I would recover more quickly with outpatient therapy, but now looking back, I wasn't ready to re-enter the outside world. A part of me was still wishing that I hadn't woken up the day after my deliberate overdose. Though I'm in a much better place in my life right now, I'm still recovering. I still have occasional crying jags when I have flashbacks to the night I decided to kill myself. I dream about what it was like to be in the hospital. I continue to struggle with PTSD. Thank you for that. Oh, actually, her name is... I'm sorry. That was Eunice. That was Eunice. And Blighted Star... Hers is very brief. She was hospitalized for depression and PTSD and uh, did her, uh, did it help being hospitalized? No. It was nice to connect with others, but the program was horrible. And uh, I was in the same area as violent offenders, and this was supposed to be the nice place. Sorry about confusing those two. Um I want to read this email. This is from um, Betty. And she writes, 
Uh, I've been dealing with a number of issues, bulimia, self-harming, obsessive compulsive behavior, and occasional periods of depression for a few years now. None of them ever seemed serious enough to discuss with my doctor, and I had too much shame to open up to my friends, so I just buried them. Since listening to your podcast, I've been attending support groups once or twice a week, and I can't tell you what a difference it's made to my life. To hear other people tell their stories, in the words I was unable to express myself, has made me feel understood and seen like I've never been before. I learned that I am not alone in how I feel, and that even my weirdest, most illogical behaviors have been acted out by many other people before me. Realizing this has also made it easier for me to talk to my friends and family when I'm feeling down. If there were two things I could say to people who are hesitant about getting help, it would be the following. One, don't think you're not sick or damaged enough to ask for support. It doesn't matter what happened to you in the past or what your medical test results say. All that matters is how you feel. If you're sad or lonely or scared, then there are people out there who want to help you and will be happy you asked. And best of all, you get to support them right back. If anyone tries to trivialize or dismiss your problems, that is their issue. Move on and find someone else to open up to. Two, it's not just a room full of fucked up people crying into each other's t-shirts. This isn't Fight Club. The people you meet in support groups will be bright, funny, insightful, and compassionate. They'll also be troubled, confused, and angry. In short, they'll be human. Please give it a try. Love that. Love that. And finally, this is a happy moment from a woman who calls herself NV. And she writes, I know this will start sad, but I promise you it ends well. My grandpa passed away a couple of days after my 20th birthday. I was always close to him, but at the end, he couldn't even recognize me. I couldn't slash didn't know uh, how to deal with his death and was a wreck for weeks. When I was a little kid, he would always give me those nasty pies and the wax paper that you can get at the gas stations. I always hated them, but he loved them. I don't remember how long it was after he was gone, but I bought one. I sat in my car and opened it up. It was the best fucking pie I ever ate. The sound of the wrapper crunching, the smell of the glaze, and the taste. Flaky, sweet, and the apples melted on my tongue. I was sobbing the entire time I was eating, but it was the most relieved I had been since he passed. I know I sound like some crazy foodie, but that one pie made me feel like I was a little girl again sitting in the back of his car. It felt like he was with me, and I felt like all the things I didn't get to say just didn't matter anymore. I felt happy. Oh, what a beautiful, beautiful one to end on. If you're out there and you're listening and you're, you're feeling stuck, and you're feeling like things are never going to get better, they can. They can, but it often has to start with you getting out of your comfort zone and asking for help. And there's um, there's help everywhere. And um, I know I would be dead. I say it all the time. I would be dead if I hadn't asked for help. Um, and I'm glad I did. I'm glad I'm still around because uh, I've gotten to experience some beautiful, beautiful things in the 15 years since I was seriously considering uh, killing myself. And um, this podcast is, is one of those things. And if I hadn't been through all that shit, I wouldn't get to... I wouldn't get to connect so deeply to you guys and read your beautiful emails and read your beautiful surveys and laugh with you and cry with you and, you know, sometimes have you criticize me and have me tell you to go fuck yourself. Uh, it's, it's all, it's all been great. So 
try. Just, just say, can you help me? You got a minute? There's something I want to talk about that's really hard to talk about and I don't know who to talk to. Start there. And just know that you're not alone. And thank you for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.